You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Tim. Hi, Bob. How's it going? I can't complain. Let me introduce this. Uh, I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. Uh, This is the Non-Zero Podcast, although I think uh, it's also going to be available via your newsletter because of a kind of collaboration thing we're experimenting with that we can talk about. Uh, your newsletter is Understanding AI. You're Timothy B. Lee. And um, we're uh, going to every every month or so uh, do a podcast on AI and see how that goes, because I have a very deep interest in that subject. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to, to try this out. And then uh, we'll uh, and and the deal will be uh, you know, much of it will be publicly available, as is the case with all my uh, pretty much all my podcasts, uh, the lion's share of it. And then the whole thing will be available to paid subscribers of my newsletter and paid subscribers of your newsletter. That's right. And you've just gone paid, right? That's a new thing. Yes. Uh, last week, I started um, asking people to pay. And um, yeah, there'll be a mix of, of paid and free content going forward. Yeah. How's that going? Are you rich? Uh, not rich yet, but um, I would say a good start. Um, I, mean, I think it's uh, you, you just have to hassle people a few times to to get them to to pay up. So, um, and 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 I yeah. have to provide value for my subscribers. So this is one of the things I'm experimenting with to figure out, you know, yeah. what my what my subscribers are interested in and what kind of content they value. Yeah, no, the the formula for success, I think, is like this curve of rising shamelessness in in <laughs> in self-promotion and and uh even self-pity sometimes I, I you know that may work um so there's a number of things we can talk about uh today uh including some things that appear in your newsletter i i hope we'll get to the uh you know self-driving vehicles that kind of stuff but i think we both are in the mood to talk somewhat extensively about the drama at open ai it's been a while since it culminated but we still haven't seen I haven't seen a satisfactory kind of comprehensive postmortem, and I'm sure we won't quite achieve a comprehensive one, but I really would like to try to figure out with you exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that the the ultimate motivations of the board, I mean, so there was a surprise firing on the, that Friday, um, and I think to this day, the ultimate motivations of the board are still pretty opaque. Um, there's been a lot of speculation. Um, a lot of people have suggested that fears about excessively rapid, insufficiently cautious development of AI was a big factor. Um, but I mean, it's weird because the board um, ha- just has the people on the board just haven't talked about it at all. And so mm. um, we're really reading behind the lines or um, going based on reports that reporters, you know, people talk to reporters anonymously and their reporters repeat what they said, but we don't know who's talking to whom and, you know, how how much insight they actually have on on the decision-making process. Yeah. Uh, and in case anyone watching or listening was on another planet, you know, Sam Altman, CEO, was ousted by the board. Then he, uh, but but then he pulled a jujitsu and ousted the, most of the board. And now he's back. Uh, and there was this uh, intervening drama where, uh, you know, Microsoft, which owns 49% of OpenAI and provides its compute, um, kind of weighed in on behalf of Altman's reinstatement, offered him, even said he was now working for Microsoft, uh, along with Greg Brockman, who backed, who, who, who 
had been on the board, who had been on one of six members of the board, like Sam Altman. Apparently, they weren't invited to all the meetings. Um, and the four who wanted them out figured they didn't have to invite everybody to meetings if they knew they had a majority, I guess. I, I don't know how exactly that worked. But uh, Brockman was demoted uh, from, uh, uh, Altman was fired, Brockman quit. And then um, uh, a growing number of employees signed on, especially after Microsoft kind of signaled that they would be willing to hire anybody from OpenAI and said, if the board doesn't resign, we will whatever fall on our swords for Sam. Although actually they just meant we know we can have a secure job with Sam. So huh, that happened. And the standard narrative was this was the uh you know very safety conscious people on the board ai safety conscious they were kind of identified with effective altruism uh against sam altman who professes to be concerned about safety but in fact was more in the zuckerberg move fast and break things mode that was the standard narrative that that was the nature of concern but as you say we still don't know and in fact ezra klein weighed in yesterday on threads uh, with this. He said, one thing in the OpenAI story I'm now fully convinced of is it's consistent in my interviews on both sides. This was not about safety. It was not about commercialization. It was not about speed of development or releases. It was not about QSTAR. QSTAR is this supposedly important functionality that OpenAI hasn't unveiled yet. Uh, and then Ezra goes on, it was really a pure fight over control. The board felt it couldn't control trust Altman, control slash trust Altman. It felt Altman could and would outmaneuver them in a pinch, but he wasn't outmaneuvering them on X issue. They just felt they couldn't govern him. Does that make sense to you as an adequate explanation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one, so, so, two, so two things I would add. You, you said that, that Microsoft owns 49% of OpenAI. Uh, an important caveat to that is that there's a, OpenAI has a complicated structure where there's a nonprofit board that's ultimately in charge, and then it has a right. subsidiary that has a for-profit operation. Microsoft owned forty-nine percent of the subsidiary, okay. but it didn't have a board seat. It didn't have any actual. That forty-nine percent was almost notional because you know, normally, if you own almost half of a company, you get one or two board seats. They got zero board seats. They had no actual right. control. Um, and I think a big factor was just this was a very small, um, very inexperienced board. I think it was just not people. I mean, Sam Altman previous to being an open AI was the president of Y Combinator, which is like the best known um, startup accelerator, which means that he has been involved. And so anytime Y Combinator accepts somebody into their one of their classes, they get an investment. So he's been an investor in like literally hundreds of companies. He's been involved in lots of like boardroom fights and, you know, investor discussions. And so he's just a very savvy operator. And I think the board um, is made up of uh, much less experienced people. Um, and so I think they were just not prepared to oversee a organization that was as large and fast growing and prominent as OpenAI is. And so I think they just made some rookie mistakes. And um, I'm sure this case that Sam Altman is a difficult person to control. And um, my, so, so yeah, so I, I mean, I, Ezra's reporting, I'm sure is much better than mine. So I'm going to defer to him on what he said there. But but I think part of the, the dynamic might be that um, that the people on the board felt they had a responsibility to control him and he is hard to control and um they just kind of freaked out and they're like we are not mm -hmm. we don't feel like we're able to do our job which is to keep this safe and so and we're not comfortable with the way sam is behaving and they maybe imagined they could just fire sam and that would be the end of it and didn't really because they maybe didn't have as much experience 
operating on kind of high stakes boards didn't game out like, okay, we fire him. What happens next? Um, and obviously what happens next is uh, like really bad for both them and open AI. Um, but maybe they just didn't, didn't think it through carefully enough. Well, I would be a little harder on the board. I don't have much experience with boards, but I would have gamed it out further than they did, I think. <laughs> sure. You know, it, it's like they didn't give Microsoft a heads up I- until a minute before. And of course, as you say, they had no technical obligation to because it's this odd thing where they are running a nonprofit and their stated mission, their mandate is to do good things that are good for humankind. So, you know, it's a little more narrowly specified that in turn in the sense that it's focused on AI, but they're not supposed to be concerned uh, with like maximizing shareholder value, which there isn't any in the sense of public shareholders. Right. And their right. their mission isn't to maximize investor uh, value. So, so it is this super strange thing. And you can argue that they were doing their job. I think maybe they were. And, mm-hmm. and and uh, they were doing it in a naive way and didn't think things through. Um, and uh, that's all true. But um, the reason I think there must be more to the story than Ezra is saying is like, Two, there's two sides of this story. I mean, there's two, there's two kinds. I would think broadly, there's mainly two kinds of sources. Uh, there's the kind on Sam's side. And of course, they want to say he wasn't taking any, any ridiculous risks. And then there's the board side. And there's only like three people who know what the truth is there. Are they talking mm-hmm. to Ezra? And if they are, do they want to tell him the truth? I don't know. I, I guess if they're talking to him, I mean, if they wanted the story out, that it it was safety issues, we'd have heard it by now. Uh, Mm. So I don't, I'm not sure it's very easy for somebody in his position to get both sides of the story. Mm. Um, And it just seems the idea that they had this abstract concern and no specific things they griped to each other about, if that's what he's saying, I mean, he's not quite saying that. Because even in his account, there must be instances where Altman, like, deceived him a little or shaded the truth. I just think there must have been one of those that had some actual consequence and was relevant to the question of how fast OpenAI proceeds and how careful it is, right? I mean, I just don't think it was this generic concern. I mean, so so one thing to note is that this happened about a week and a half after OpenAI had its demo day. Or it's yeah. um, developer day, which is a big day when um, they announce some new products. They're focused on um, their APIs, which is the interface that developers use to build third-party products based on OpenAI's technology. And that's something where it's, it really creates kind of a lock-in for OpenAI from a mission perspective. Because once they're offering, once they're not only offering ChatGP as a product to consumers, but also providing a platform that lots of other people are using to build their software, it would be very disruptive for OpenAI to later say, oh, like, we're going too fast, we're going to cut off functionality, we're going to change our, our focus. Mm-hmm. And um, it would not surprise to me if, you know, Sam Altman, uh, you know, gave the board a misleading impression of what that what was going to be announced at that, um, maybe said things at the at his keynote that um, went farther than the board expected. I mean, I don't know the specifics, but I, I could imagine a situation over a course of a month, of months, the board members would ask Sam kind of what's going on, what's going to happen. And they keep being surprised by, you know, him doing things publicly that were different from what he had told them privately, uh, maybe in subtle ways that are like difficult to prove very specifically. I, mean, I, th- I think Sam is a, a pretty savvy operator. And so he may have um, 
said things that were technically true, but gave the board a misleading impression, said different things to different board members. I, I mean, I don't know. This is just speculation, right. but that's the sort of thing I can imagine where it wouldn't be any, any of the, given the magnitude of what happened for OpenAI, maybe the things that in retrospect seem pretty small and would be hard to kind of justify is like, this is the reason we, we fired him, but you add up a bunch of things just created this like increasing um, right. level of mistrust. The, the, the other like person I think we really have to talk to is Ilya Sutskever, who was kind of the um, star scientist of OpenAI, right. um, has a board seat, as one, was one of the founding scientists. And um, I think he was really the reason the board was able to make this move, because there's six right. members. As you said, there are three external, th three external board members um, and three employees. Um, and so if Ilya had stuck with his, with his colleagues, um, the, the other three would not have had a majority for whatever they wanted to do. And there was an article in The Atlantic suggesting that um, his thinking had been as OpenAI had made progress, the progress was faster than uh, Sutskiver expected, and that he believes that OpenAI is closer, get, getting close to, to AGI, whatever that is, and then that made him more nervous about, you know, the lack of safety controls, the lack of focus on safety. I, I believe that um, that Sutskiver was put in charge of the super alignment project that OpenAI announced mm -hmm. a few months ago to put 20% um, of their compute budget towards uh, safety research, basically. Um, anyway, the, the, the claim from this Atlantic article was that um, Sutskiver was getting, thought OpenAI was close to having transformational AI, thought a, open, that um, Sam was not uh, paying enough attention to the safety dimensions. And we don't know exactly what the trigger is, but sometime in the, the few days before the flip, he, he kind of made up his mind that, this, that, that he wasn't th didn't think Sam was going in the direction and went to the other board members and kind of suggested they, um, they fire him. Um, th this is a, um, I mean, the interesting thing is then by the end of the weekend, um, he had flipped sides and said he was very sorry he'd done this and, um, you know, wanted to make it right and wanted Sam back. So, um, that obviously doesn't reflect well on him. I mean, which, whichever side you think is right, like that kind of, um, flipping sides very yeah. quickly. Um, so I don't know, that, that's not a good look for him, but, um, that, that makes me think there probably was a sort of safety element because, um, mm -hmm. Just from the reporting, it seemed like that was well, kind of what, what he what he cared about. Yeah. Now, one could come up with a more cynical explanation for his initial opposition to Altman, which is, um, I mean, first of all, the safety thing would make sense as Suskiver's motivation, and I think it probably was some of it. He's a kind of a protege of Jeffrey Hinton, uh, and Hinton sometimes identified a bit misleadingly, perhaps, as the godfather of AI, is one of these people who has the concern about the superintelligence. The, the yeah. sci-fi concern. And and that's a concern, as you said, about artificial general intelligence per se. Uh, and Siskiver has some of that. At the same time, to get back to the cynical explanation, look, he's the guy responsible, as respons more responsible than anybody else in the company, I assume, for the amazingness of GPT, chat GPT. He's the chief mm -hmm. scientist. He's the genius they hired. Who gets all the credit? Sam Altman. Who's out there? Sam Altman. Does Sam Altman very often mention Elia? I haven't heard it. I've heard him maybe once or twice, but he doesn't go out of his way to shower credit on him. And I assume Elia Sutskever is human. And that's exactly the kind of thing that can build up and, 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 and be an influence. I'm not saying it's the only influence, mm -hmm. but uh, I think it shouldn't I'm, be. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I mean, I do think in the AI community, I mean, that you know, he's a he's fundamentally a scientist. Um, in the circles he he um, runs in, he's a very very prominent person. I think mm -hmm. everybody knows 
that he's the guy technically um so i'm sure like everybody would like more more credit and time in the limelight but i, I wouldn't get the sense that he he would feel he was sort of not getting yeah. proper credit or getting slighted because um yeah like he m mostly cares about pro i would assume he would care most about what other um sort of ai researchers know and every AI re researcher knows um who he is and what he's accomplished i mean part of part of partly because he's he had had as you said he's a, a protege of jeffrey hendren he was a co-author on the original AlexNet paper in 2012 that sort of kicked off the deep learning revolution. So he was already a very prominent person before OpenAI came along. He was, I think, I think he's widely acknowledged as the co-founder of OpenAI. So, um, I mean, like I said, I, I haven't, haven't talked to the guy. I don't know what his motivations are, but um, at a very bit, of, I would say it was more than that. Like that, that didn't. Oh, it had to be. be. I think it was more than that. Yeah. But, you know, little things matter. Another little thing is, uh, you know, apparently, you know, one of the board members, Helen Toner, this uh, former board members uh, who, you know, and, and to get back to the whole effective altruism narrative, uh, which dominated the initial postmortems, um, you know, she is at an organization that is supported by open philanthropy. I think maybe she was at open philanthropy and open she philanthropy was, yeah. is, among other things, a very AI safety conscious thing. It supports the nonprofit she's on at Georgetown. It has a connection to the other uh, board member who was not very prominent in the discussion, but the other woman on the board who was also Tasha no longer on the board. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and 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 that's one reason that, uh, you know, this narrative emerged uh, that this was about safety. But the other reason, uh, well, there are a lot of reasons. And I think you can you can make the case that it was substantially about safety, probably. But. She had written a thing. Uh, did you look at her paper that Altman apparently complained about? She had written a paper that basically said it was ostensibly an academic paper about how corporations can send signals. But it basically said Anthropic is being more careful than open AI. Now, by the way, Anthropic, this was Sam Altman's first big uh, brush with the safety issue at open AI when a bunch of employees said he wasn't concerned enough about uh, open AI. Some of them are aligned with the effective altruism movement, uh, which I want to talk about because I think that whole thing is being misunderstood. But anyway, they went and started Anthropic, which is now a powerhouse. It's now one of the like the big four, big five in America. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, apparently Altman went and complained to her about what she had written. Now, that's really stepping out of line because, as you say, this isn't a conventional board. If it's mm -hmm. a conventional board and she has written something that's going to hurt shareholder value, fine. But her mission is to call them as she sees them. She's yeah. head of a, she's on the board of a nonprofit, and he comes and tells her what she should and shouldn't say publicly about yeah. her mission. Now that is him overstepping his bounds, given the way this whole thing is structured right yeah but 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 i also think I, mean, I think this goes back to the point that like whether it's about safety or not is not like a clear-cut thing because on the one hand from um from his perspective he just sees it as kind of a matter of i mean even a nonprofit board that's a little weird for a nonprofit to like publish an article saying that the, the organization i'm a part of is behaving I, mean, I i don't necessarily think he should tell her to stop but well, the normal way you deal with that is internally you know if you have a well-functioning board you raise concerns internally but anyway like you, you can see from her, for, from his perspective it was just kind of a matter of um etiquette within an organization like you keep your kind of complaints inside whereas from her perspective it was from about safety mm -hmm. um like you can frame it in either way and i think that um yeah like sam altman kind of 
wanted to have a lot of autonomy and kind of do his thing. And the board wanted to oversee it partly because yeah. they felt their safety. But it's like, I, I think it's like almost like just two ways of looking at the same, um, the same basic disagreement. Yeah. But, but, well, I want to say two things. First of all, yeah, it's a weird thing for a board member, a nonprofit to do. On the other hand, it's extremely rare for a nonprofit's mission to be, mm-hmm. to, cri- to in effect, criticize and correct its own subsidiary, right? Yeah. That just, right. it's a weird setup, but she was right. doing what she's supposed to do. And he was, uh, I'm sure from her point of view, being very annoying. And what I wanted to say is it gets, it gets back to how closely related like personal irritations can be. Like that's going to piss her off at a personal level. If, mm-hmm. if he had said, you know, I don't think your hair looks good, it would have pissed her off. Like whatever, yeah. you know. <laughs> but but as it happens, this was a safety, uh, this was a safety issue, and so that's one reason to hard uh, to disentangle the. Uh, but another reason, I, I I think this had to be to some extent about safety is, is it a coincidence that uh, it had this happened? Well, it happened after two things. It happened after, as you said, this big like developer conference where, uh, again, OpenAI seemed to be proceeding full speed ahead. And we should say that is what Altman seemed to do, right? He, he early on OpenAI, they opened up their API to, well, first of all, uh, to plugin makers, people wanted to make plugins that that would accelerate the dissemination of AI technology and also a kind of API that would let corporations, you know, people with a lot of money come in and use their own training data or something I don't totally understand. But that was a kind of accelerationist move. And then this big developer conference, as you said, it not only opened up new opportunities to developers, it it, it in a certain sense turns all of us into developers, right? They, they unveiled these bots that you can customize uh, uh, possibly in ways that would allow you to uh, in- increase your company's productivity and fire people. If you're just like a mom and pop shop, I can imagine customizing one of these bots that accelerates the displacement of workers. And uh, m- my question is like, uh, so, so anyway, this happened right after that uh, and also right after something else we can get to, but, um, you tell me, how could Sam Altman have gone any slower over the last two years than he's gone? He 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 comes to Congress and says he's concerned, but what is he actually doing? I mean, I'm sure the part of the answer is part of their budget goes to safety, and there's people working on it. But I mean, in terms of rollout, yeah, he's like he's like Mark Zuckerberg, so far as yeah. I can tell. It's like let's yeah, just I, go forward, forward, forward. Yeah, I I think I mean I actually think it's interesting to step back further. So if you look at the overall history of OpenAI, they're you know they've been around since 2015. And they started experimenting with with the, the GPT, you know, one, two, three, four, um, around twenty eighteen. And when they released GPT two, they actually didn't release it. They um, published some papers about it, but said we we're not going to make this available to uh, anybody because mm-hmm. we were worried it's too dangerous. And 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 that was a change because previously they like open, the, the original mission was going to open up source everything. Like that's the way to to make public benefit. When GPT two came out, which was you know much not nearly as good as ChatGPT. They said, ooh, like this this is like advanced enough that we're worried about misinformation, blah blah blah. So we're not going to release it. Um, and so I was actually surprised, like, you know, I'd been sort of following that at the time. I was surprised when GPT-3 and 3.5 and, and, and ChatGPT came out that they were so public about it, um, because, uh, this was an even more powerful model. And, um, I don't feel like they've ever, like, fully understand, explained why they did that. 
Um, and and what, what I think they would say if you ask them was that, look, somebody's going to build these models and it's better to have a nonprofit that's concerned with these issues do it than, you know, Google or the Chinese government or something. And um, that it's important for the public to understand the capabilities so that we can like make good policy, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I agree. Like the um, the rush to commercialize it in, in the most extensive, fastest way possible is a little hard to square with that mission. And I assume it's just because like this is what Sam Altman does, right? Again, he was at Y Combinator before this and well, Y Combinator and his big thing when he was advising startups is like, how can you be more ambitious? Like that's that's like his whole thing is was, was like helping you know, uh, startup founders with um, pretty promising ideas become these like massive companies like Google or Facebook. And um, it seems like he just talked himself into um, that being consistent with the mission, even though it's like not, it doesn't seem, you know, it, it, it seems hard to square with the way OpenAI behaved in its, its, its first, mm -hmm. uh, first few years. Yeah, well, uh, th th there's, I, I think he has a kind of answer he would give that, I want to get to when we talk about your own doubts about how grave a threat AI is, because you've written about yeah. that uh, recently in your um, in your newsletter. Uh, but uh, I also want to say the the uh, well, uh, I mean, I I, I guess uh, there's one other thing he had done that I personally find annoying, and I don't know if the board did, but he had kind of hinted a couple times that they've got some super powerful thing in the closet. It's going to blow your mind. And, you know, he did it in an interview with Lorreen Powell Jobs, and he did it some other time. And my view is, look, I mean, obviously, that's good for him. It gives him this kind of mystique. I'm the one who knows the secret. And that's why I just find it annoying as shit. Look, when you're ready to disclose it, disclose it. Until then, you know, you know, Cut it with the I know something you don't know act. I just find that extremely annoying. And and I don't I don't know if if any other if any board members did. But what's your what's your take? Were you, are you not annoyed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think this goes back to the weirdness of their structure. I mean, the, the problem they had was they started as a nonprofit board. Elon Musk was just giving them a bunch of money. And so they could just be a nonprofit and pursue their mission. And Elon Musk would just kind of give them unconditional money. When Elon Musk left around 2018, um, they wanted to keep operating. And in particular, they, they were finding that to make a really, really powerful AI, you need to make it larger and larger. You need more and more compute budget. And so they needed more money. And there was no way they're going to raise billions of dollars from you know philanthropic sources. And so they convinced themselves that the thing to do was to take money from Microsoft. And um, but that then obviously changes the incentives. And um, now you know, Sam is on the, the startup treadmill where he needs to, you know, open eyes, not properly. I think this is, was one of the, actually one of the big um, underlying dynamics of the, you know, that weekend was that um, open eye did not have the option to kind of go back to being a regular nonprofit because um, they were losing a ton of money. And the premise was they're going to keep raising money, but they're going to grow this giant, like Google sized business that then will eventually be profitable. They needed several more years of venture capital. And that gave Microsoft a ton of leverage. Um, and I think that's a big reason why you saw, I mean, Sam Altman is kind of in, in marketing mode, right? I mean, he's, he's acting mm. like a startup founder because he has to act like that because he, he needs, he needs Microsoft to write him a big check again in a year or two. And, um, it's just a really, I think it may, you know, it was, I'm not sure it was like a, a viable balance to strike where, um, you, you kind of can't serve two masters. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, I, I, I have one question about the 
going the future of this board. But do you have anything else to say about uh, kind of what we think happened? Again, I think there was a safety issue possibly intermingled with some issues of personal friction and and just, yeah, maybe a gen, general kind of he's a he's quite an operator and I don't think we can trust him. But I, I do think that was like working in synergy with safety concerns, I would guess. But that that's my theory. Is there any any postmortem wrap up you want to do before we uh, before we talk about a little bit? I want to talk about the future of the board and Larry Summers is a kind of important role. <laughs> suddenly, mm -hmm. suddenly Larry Summers is God. But is there anything? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, my, yeah, my guess is the independent directors were probably annoyed, but didn't necessarily feel like they were empowered to do that much about it. And so when Ilya had whatever epiphany he had and came to the board and said, well, I'm concerned too now, then the, then they, they realized they had a majority to do what they wanted to do. And they decided what they wanted to do is fire Sam Altman. And it may have come up suddenly enough that you know, they didn't think it through and maybe felt like maybe the moment would pass. So they didn't want to, you know, obviously, as you said before, the smart thing to do would have been bring Microsoft in, you know, maybe give Sam a warning saying we need X, Y and Z. Or we're going to fire you. Yeah. But maybe they thought yeah. because it was kind of a tenuous majority, they foolishly thought, oh, we, we should like strike while the iron's hot and um, didn't think it through. So it was, it was really just like, obviously, the major screw up, like whatever you think on the merits, the way they did it tactically was very bad. And like they, you know, the. the the results kind of speak yeah. themselves. Yeah. Now, so quickly, so the the reconstituted board, which was a compromise, I guess, between the Altman faction and the board members who didn't have to step down, right? I mean, uh, and and in order to get them to agree to do that, Altman had to make some concessions, and I guess one concession was leaving one of the them on the board who had voted against him, uh, the Cora founder, uh, uh, Adam D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, then they brought in a guy named Brett something who's apparently respected in Silicon Valley had been at Salesforce or something. Um, and then, but then, and, and, and he, I think is an Altman ally, although he's, he's kind of widely respected and liked, I guess, but he seems to be an Altman ally. And then they brought in, uh, Larry Summers. Now there's only three board members. They can't add board members without two votes. So I would think this puts Larry Summers in a very important position as they build the board. Uh, he's presumably going to be a kind of a swing vote. Um, and my question to you is, should, I mean, he's a guy with a whole history and, uh, and of course people have noted the irony. They fire the two women on the board or they agree to get them to agree to step down and they hire Larry Summers who had to leave as pre stepped down as president of Harvard, basically because he said uh, women are uh, genetically uh, not, you know, or speculate at least a, a reason that women might be genetically unfit, unbalanced to be uh, good at science and technology. But anyway, that irony aside, you know, he's a he's a politico. He's an operator. He's been in administrations. My own personal concern is that I think he's more or less connected to the blob on foreign policy. Uh, and and my question to you is. Should this worry me the way it would worry me if it were a powerful media organization? I, in a way, I think it should worry me more. But but and I can explain why. But, you know, should I have the concerns about the ideology of the swing voter as I would if it were The New York Times or something? That's my question. You, you mean in terms of his views Power. on 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 sort of foreign policy or foreign economic policy. policy or just whether it could matter in the future, like assume 
that that let's assume he he's thinking about that and wants to further his ideology. If this were the New York Times, you'd go, well, yeah, that matters if he's the swing vote and he's going to build mm -hmm. up the board and they're going to hire the people who put the newspaper out. Mm -hmm. Should uh, I think there's a scenario in which this should concern me in somewhat the same way, but I'm not sure about it. Does it does it I, seem I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely the case that an organization like OpenAI has uh, part of what they do is they make moderation decisions, um, you know, decisions about basically the ideology of the chatbot personas that they Right. Um, do I mean that you know a, a product like ChatGPT has to decide certain questions we're not going to answer, and they have the the um those decisions are going to be um uh ideologically inflected. I mean, one example is if, if you ask um if you ask ChatGPT to like write a pr poem praising Hitler, it will refuse because like Hitler's beyond the pale. But you can kind of play a game where you think of different kind of controversial you know global figures, you know Vladimir Putin or. Um, and, and you can kind of figure out the ideology of the people who created the product by based on like who they um, consider kind of beyond the pale. And anyway, so like I can definitely see in the long run, he would have some impact on that. Um, I, I think it would be hard for, for a board for a board to steer that too precisely because the people actually making those decisions are going to be several levels below Sam Altman and the hierarchy. Yeah. And um, so I, I think at the margin, it certainly matters. But um, I, I think it's uh, that's kind of a long term thing where, yeah, absolutely. Like if, if OpenAI becomes you know, has the power to shape in the same way that Facebook. I mean, certainly who's on the Facebook board board is going to matter because Facebook, you know, makes moderation decisions that swing elections and stuff. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's a concern. But I think that's more of a long term concern. In the short term, it's more about, um, you know, how he feels about the pace of commercialization. And, um, you know, I mean, it's hard to say what, what's going to come up, but more kind of AI specific concerns that are not. I think primarily ideological in the kind of regular political sense. Yeah, but see, I think the ideology can uh, manifest itself more subtly than you know. Can you, you know, will it say nice things about Hitler or something? It's like uh, I'll give you an example. Like I was just curious. Like I ask it, like why did Bill Clinton decide to expand NATO? And mm -hmm. I didn't ask it why did he what did he what what did he say. It would be naive to answer the question about why a politician did something by just saying what he said. But that's what it did. It, it just said, mm -hmm. well, he wanted to spread democracy. He wanted to do this. And, you know, I know the actual story. He, mm -hmm. he, 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 uh, there was heavy lobbying by the arms industry and he wanted to get uh, votes uh, from people of Eastern European ancestry in the Midwest for the election. Mm -hmm. that, that is fairly well documented to be important. But but when yes. I said why yeah, did he do it, but and let, but let me finish. Sure. If you if you drill down, uh, you could eventually get at it. First, it said, well, he did it in order to this 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 and a bunch of bullshit. And then I said, well, what about, was he interested in getting like? Did the arms lobbyists play? Well, blah blah blah. And what about Polish American voters and wherever? Well, blah blah blah. And so it's in there. But what I want to say is like. There's two things that matter in terms of what it's going to tell you. What is the training data? You know, does Larry Summers say, uh, no, we don't want truth dig and we don't want counterpunch and we don't want this and that uh, in the training data? That is that is going to be a very important question, because for certain of these things, it, it's hard to find the truth in like The New York Times. You know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and questions very much like the one I just asked. Even actually, you can dig in the deep archives and get the truth uh, there, maybe. But um, and then the second thing is uh, reinforcement learning. You know, the round of human feedback. 
which I think is of underrated importance in making these things as impressive uh, as they are. And in selecting that group of the, of the reinforcers, that's the other big lever of influence. And if you accept the idea that some of the people concerned about safety have, and this isn't really the sci-fi concern, but that, um, you know, we may grow to rely on these things very, just like the way we rely on the most trusted human being in our life. That, that doesn't seem to me crazy that they'll become that influential. Then in that case, this matters, right? So that, that's yeah. the context of my question. No, I, I absolutely think that the, those kind of, I mean, those are fundamentally editorial decisions. Those decisions matter um, at an organizational level. I think the question is how much, how much does, does a board member have influence over that versus how much is the kind of staff having autonomy? And the thing about so absolutely, if, if you took if you took ChatGPT and you took out all of the sources from a particular perspective out of the training data, that's going to skew the training data away from that perspective. Um, but I think the the approach OpenAI has taken is kind of put everything in, and over time they'll try to take stuff out. But I think it's more going to be like we're going to take out like you know spam spam farms and um, like neo Nazi stuff. Like I think all the sort of broadly mainstream stuff is going to be in there, and even a lot of the non mainstream stuff. And I think that it's probably just going to be such a long list that Larry Summers is not going to have time to like go through. The, like that's mm. that's going to be a staff decision. So no, I, I think it absolutely matters. But I think it'll be it'll be a while before um, they have frankly the bandwidth to make those kind of fine grained decisions. Right now, I think it's just throw everything in the in the pile and um, you know, and, and the architecture might change to the point where maybe the training data isn't important or di you know different sources matter more. So it's hard to say. So I agree in the abstract, it's important. I just think it'll be probably a few years before. You would see any kind of any any like noticeable difference in its output based on somebody like Larry Summers being on the board. And I should add, I mean, the factors I've mentioned about NATO expansion, you can find those in like the nation, which is a little closer to the mainstream, you know. But uh, well, look at a minimum. I, I think I, I, I don't think it's like whether it's in there or not. It's the preponderance of the evidence. So even if you have all those sources in there, but you have a hundred. Um, you know, more conventional sources, New York Times, and maybe it decides right. that New York Times is a, like a, a higher quality one, so it gives it more weight. Um, it, it's like, yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's a question of whether something's in there or not. It's a question of um, what is kind of the weight of the sources. And um, so if, if most sources, by most definitions, have a particular perspective, the chatbot's going to give that answer, even if there's alternative answers somewhere in its training set. Right. But that's why I think it matters. And I, and I do think you know, I'm sure it has happened in the history of media, certainly, that there's a CEO and uh, they're deciding and, he, and the CEO, he or she leaves, they're deciding who to hire next. And people on the board yes, are mindful sure. of the ideology of the CEO. So even yes. though the board doesn't make that decision, you know, I, I, I really think I, I yeah, think absolutely. this is one of the things people should be very concerned about. And at a minimum. They should be transparent about their training data. We st we don't mm -hmm. know what GPT was trained on, right? Yeah, um, I think that's certainly not the current. I think version. that's yeah. inexcusable. No, absolutely. Not. No, I, th I think this is actually so. That's a good point. Like the board's power comes from its power to choose the CEO. Um, Sam Altman is going to be a strong CEO, and he might be there for another thirty years. In which case, it probably won't matter that much who's on the board because Sam is just going to do what he does. But certainly, if Sam were to leave, um, or if the board gets a lot of leverage over Sam, then that could. Um, it could matter more who the board is. So yeah, so and, and like obviously, if if Larry is, is picking the other board members, 
that can create a kind of permanent influence where the board is permanently in a, has a particular perspective and then eventually when Sam leaves. So, so yeah, I agree. It definitely matters. Um, I just think it'll be a while before it's really noticeable. Mm. So um, here's, here's what I think, and this is a, a good segue to your skepticism of the kind of sci-fi doomer scenarios where superintelligence uh, squashes us all. I, I think what Altman would say if you said, are you claim you're concerned about safety, but you're moving pretty fast. And I should say, I know somebody who knows Altman very well, has worked very closely with him and says he is actually concerned about the safety issues. This is somebody who I, who I trust to read him right and to tell me the truth about oh, yeah. his reading I, of him. And, and, and I, I, I have think, no doubt of that. And I so I think what he would say is. Uh, um, and I've seen hints of this and, and it's. It's tied in with the super the sci-fi superintelligence idea. There seems to be this idea in that community, the, the hardcore sci-fi doomers, that like there's some kind of magic alignment formula. And if we can discover it, we can make these AIs nice or something. And it's almost like a plug-in or something. It's like, it's like, you know, and and I think Altman would say. If we remain at the head of the pack and we are concerned and we are devoting all this money to finding the magic friendliness plug-in or something, um, we can be the ones who show the world how to create an aligned AI and, you know, make it and, and promulgate it because we'll be the head of the pack. I, right. I, does it make sense to you that that's kind of oh, what it's, he's it's, thinking? It's more than that. I mean, if you read Nick Bostrom, whose book Superintelligence sort of, I think, is the the seminal um, influence in, uh, on this topic, I'm like, his view is that the, the first superintelligent AI that's created will be so powerful that it'll be capable of taking over the world. And so if you're the one that creates that, it's going to have your values or potentially have your values. And so the most most important thing is to have that first version be created correctly. And so I think in Sam's mind, somebody's going to create that. Um, he's smart. He's capable. He's concerned about AI. And so he's going to uh, he wants to get there first so that his super alignment team can put the right, like you said, the right friendliness plugin in. Um, and it kind of doesn't matter what anybody else does, because if they get there first, then it will. And it's a little like it's really frustrating when you read Nick Bostrom. He has like two pages where he says what's going to happen is it'll become super intelligent and they'll invent this like magical nanotechnology nanotechnology thing they'll spread all over the world and basically go like god it can just do whatever it wants and i'm not sure that's even like physically possible i, I find that very very implausible but like that's the only scenario he really talks about and so the, the exact mechanism of like how having the most powerful ai leads to taking over the world is unclear um but anyway, that's their view, I think, is that this is inevitable. Um, the first one's going to be very powerful. And if we can make that one nice, that will then create a lot of leverage to make sure no bad ones emerge. Like the, the smart, the nice superintelligence will be able to prevent any evil superintelligence from emerging. And so they want to get there and, and you know, do it first. Mm -hmm. and, and part of this is this idea that there really is this clear threshold to AGI. You'll know it. You know, artificial general intelligence is this kind of platonic ideal. It's not it's not just some kind of arbitrary uh, marker on a on mm -hmm. a gradient of progress. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, the idea is once you have one AGI, you can make a million of them and then you can have this scientific research team 
that one of the things they can do is do research to make itself more smarter. And so once you have it at human level, you can very quickly get above human level. And there's this, they call it an intelligence explosion where it gets smarter and smarter. And soon it's like so far above humans that we don't even understand what it's doing. And it can move much faster than us and right, take over the world. Um, yeah. And so the, 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 there's this idea that intelligence is this very like one dimensional thing where we're at, you know, 120 IQ or we're at 100 to 150 IQ, but there's like a 500 IQ or a 10,000 IQ that like we can't even think of because, you know, our brains aren't big enough. Um, and if you believe that, then, yeah, it makes sense that 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 thing will be very powerful. And it really, really matters like what the first instance of it, um, what it's like. Yeah. Um, OK, well, uh, I mean, maybe uh, maybe this is a good point to. Uh... Uh, well, actually, no, that reminds me uh, before I say uh, uh, bring down the paywall. That made me think of the phrase bring down the uh, veil of ignorance. And I want to ask you. So I was thinking about writing a little item about how Sam Altman had used the term veil of ignorance and he kind of misused it in a way that I think is actually you could argue is a little bit telling. So here's a question I have. I was more. Well, I was kind of a liberal. I was a social science major. So I'm aware of the actual origin of the term veil of ignorance. And I guess it's not that widely known, maybe outside of the humanities and to some extent. I, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you what the. OK, well, th is. this is interesting then, because Altman said in one of these things where he was teasing us and like he knows this secret, he said, I'll just say, you know, there was a recent within the, within the last few months or something. I had one of those moments where I put we push back the veil of ignorance and see, uh, you know, what uh, what lies ahead uh, or, you know, and, and basically he, he was taking it to mean things we don't know, the veil of ignorance. And the actual origin of the term is with the philosopher John Rawls, and it's probably the most influential piece of liberal moral philosophy of the past half century, I would say, Rawlsian. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so the veil of ignorance is like if you were the way you should think about setting up a society is you don't know which person you're going to be in the society. Okay? And like yeah, right now you're you're Sam Altman, you're privileged and you're going to be doing fine if AI makes a billion dollars, but but Rawls would say uh you know, uh and this is this is a kind of extension of utilitarianism, I would say, or could be used that way, which is, of course, the philosophy of the of the of the EAs, the the effective altruists, um, which which Altman is is not one of, uh, but but um, uh, but he probably is utilitarian. Anyway, it's an extension of utilitarianism that, in effect, adds a dimension of kind of uh, egalitarianism because mm -hmm. you could be any of those people and you have to decide what the ideal society is, what the ideal distrib distribution power is and so on uh, without assuming you'll be as privileged as you are. And I was just, it was just interesting to me because like, that's a way of phrasing what the board's critique of him might be. <laughs> You're not thinking enough the way Rawls wants you to think and mm -hmm. and uh, it's just interesting that he demonstrated that he doesn't seem to know what John what, this whole thing. It's just kind yeah. of ironic. It's yeah, it's yeah. I mean, these I, little things that that it would be unfair to make a big deal of, and yet it could be the basis for a decent column, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So actually, I, I had had read Redwall, so I'm definitely familiar with that. It just didn't occur to me that, that was the same. That, 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 that seemed like a totally different sense. But yeah, I, I I see what you mean there. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things you, you'll hear people in kind of the this um, this superintelligence world will say is that one of the one of the first things I want to ask superintelligence is like explain the like fundamentals of physics to them. And I think this mm -hmm. is like um, th this is the the kind of point I made in my piece is like people. I think people in this world have this impression that like intelligence is the main thing you need to solve kind of all problems in the world. And for me, like I, I think to find out kind of fundamental physics, you need to do things like build particle accelerators, right? Like you can have lots of theories. Like people have, you know, they have string theory, and I don't know. There's lots of other theories out there. The problem is that they're not falsifiable until you like do some experiments, and those experiments are hard to do. And like I see that as one of the fundamental like divides here is that. If you think like intelligence is the be all and end all, then if you get more and more intelligence, you you know become very powerful. Whereas I think it's more like a, a lot of a lot of aspects of the world are really controlled by having the right knowledge and the right infrastructure. And um, you know, being intelligent certainly helps. It lets you get those other things a little faster. Um, but uh, being super intelligent doesn't help you if you don't have the ability to um, to kind of go out in the world and and try things and and see what happens as a result. Yeah. Okay, so now uh, now we can bring down the paywall of ignorance. You don't know what's on the other side, but we will give you we will give you these clues. First of all, you can access it uh, by becoming a paid subscriber either to my non-zero newsletter or to your understanding AI newsletter. Um, and uh, of course, you can become an unpaid subscriber to both if uh, you know the, please, the gateway drug. Do. We hope. Uh, and uh, you'll get you'll get uh, content uh, in both, you know, obviously more content uh, one way than the other. But we encourage both. And I guess what we can talk about to give them a clue of what what uh, lies on the other side of the paywall of ignorance um, is uh, I, I want to you. You have this whole skepticism about AGI that's uh, in a way greater than or different from my skepticism. I, I think we'll probably get to amazing heights, I, I, but I, I still don't, I, I, I'm still skeptical of the sci-fi doomerism, or at least I don't quite understand it. Anyway, you're, you're skeptical at a more, a deeper level. Um, talk about that. Uh, if we have time, I'll talk a little more about effective altruism and what it, what it, you know, how, I think it's been kind of a little warped in the coverage of this. And then you, uh, have a whole thing about, uh, like self-driving cars you, you've written about lately. I want to learn more about that. Get your take on that. Okay. So, Anything you want to say before we head into overtime? No. Nope. Aside from, aside from uh, please, please support us. Um, okay, so we're heading into overtime.